This edition of Interviewing Authors is brought to you by our sponsor, TheBestSellingAuthor.com, helping authors of all genres write, publish, and promote their books. Visit TheBestSellingAuthor.com today, and you can become a premium member absolutely free. That's a $497 value. You'll get instant access to insider articles, audio training, and a lot more to help you become a best-selling author. You'll also get free access to the official directory of literary agents. The creator of this site is a former literary agent, and he has helped authors get six-figure book deals with publishers such as Random House, Penguin Books, and Thomas Nelson. Visit TheBestSellingAuthor.com today and join tens of thousands of other authors who are already members. Again, that's a $497 value at no cost to you. Just go to TheBestSellingAuthor.com, that's TheBestSellingAuthor.com, and click the tab that says Membership to take advantage of this free offer. Welcome to Interviewing Authors with your host, Tim Knox. Hi, everyone. Welcome into another edition of Interviewing Authors. Anthony Bresnikan is my guest today. Anthony is a former reporter with the Arizona Republic. He worked for the Associated Press USA Today, currently a staff writer for Entertainment Weekly, and the author of one of my favorite new books, Brutal Youth, the story of St. Michael, the Archangel High School, and four young people who go there and find themselves embroiled in uh, all kinds of danger and drama. If someone asked me to define what this book was about, I would say it is Fast Times at Ridgemont High combined with Shawshank Redemption. This turned out to be one of my favorite interviews I've ever done simply because Anthony brought so much honesty to the interview. He talks about his experiences uh, dealing with publishers, dealing with agents, the lessons he learned there, and the advice that he brings you. You know, I think it's the dream of every author to get a big-time agent and get a big-time publishing contract, but quite often things do not go as planned, and uh, you're going to hear Anthony talk about that. And uh, And thankfully, he made it through and is doing quite well working on a second book now. So a great interview. If you're starting out as an author or if you are dealing with everything that it entails, you're going to want to listen to what Anthony Bresnikan has to say. Anthony is the author again of Brutal Youth, and he's my guest today on Interviewing Authors. Anthony, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here, Tim. Pleasure having you. Before we get started, if you will, give the audience a little background on you. Well, my name, as you said, is Anthony Bresnikan. I'm a uh, uh, a reporter. I work for Entertainment Weekly now. I cover the film beat for them. I started out as a general assignment reporter for the Associated Press, covering cops and politics and protests and earthquakes and wildfires, any, anything like that that would break any kind of news <laughs> that would hit, I would run at it. <laughs> and uh, that was uh, the start of my career as a reporter. And uh, I've always loved stories and storytelling and storytellers. So, you know, when I, I ended up out here in Los Angeles, you, you get the opportunity to pick up a little bit of entertainment news when you're covering all that other stuff. And I, uh, I started to gravitate toward it, uh, not because I, I wanted to write about movies and books and television shows, but simply because I... I'm fascinated by creative people, and uh, what I thought would happen as a kid growing up in Pittsburgh is that I would, I would go up and write novels. And uh, once I was in college, I, I really got into the school newspaper, and that ink kind of seeps into your blood very quickly, and you end up getting promoted very quickly because the uh, you know the leadership of the newspaper keeps graduating every year, so uh, you're constantly in a state of of starting a job that you don't know how to do, uh, <laughs> from reporting to editing uh, the news section to being the editor-in-chief. So I uh, spent a lot of time becoming uh, uh, honing my journalism skills, and then that became the main event. And now I have... Uh, Finally, after all these years, published a novel. So here's a uh, just a young man from Pennsylvania. Now you're living in L.A., writing Entertainment Weekly. Uh, mm -hmm. You uh, you spent a lot of years as a reporter, as you talked about. Uh, I would assume that that was a a good way to uh, learn the craft or hone your craft. I've, I've, I find it interesting when I talk to uh, old reporters, not that you're old, uh, mm -hmm. but they talk about how when they're reporting the news, they can't really flesh out characters, and they just have to report what they see. But I've also heard it's a great training ground for a novelist. Is that what you think? 
Yeah, I think another reason I gravitated toward entertainment journalism and pop culture reporting is that you can uh, you can be a little more creative in the way you write about it. It's the dessert of news, you know. It's the fourth section in. Uh, <laughs> you have the news section, the opinions, sports, and then leisure. Uh, when I worked for USA Today, it was the purple section, the life section, <laughs> and uh, I I. I recognize that, but I think you can also craft a, a, a very uh, scrumptious dessert. You can, you can. Uh, sometimes you're in the mood for gummy bears. Other times, you can make a very fine creme brulee. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I do my best with it, but I also enjoy the fact that I can be a little more creative. Not with the facts; those are always sacrosanct. But I think um, you can have a little more fun with your writing. Right. Uh, for what I do. Well, growing up in, in Pittsburgh, you mentioned the school newspaper. Had you always wanted to be a, a writer? Were you always writing short stories or poetry, that sort of thing? I wasn't much of a poet until I got to uh, high school. And then uh, really, you know, like a lot of kids that age, I thought I could write some poems that would uh, exercise whatever demons and sadness and loneliness and heartbreak I had inside me. Uh, <laughs> and attract uh, the girls. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, you, you have to throw that in. I, I've, I, I've written some poems for girls, but mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I, I, know, I don't know that I ever wrote like a love poem. But maybe. I'm sure you could find some in there. <laughs> it's not too uh, late. <laughs> yeah. It's... Um, uh, you know what's funny, Tim? I, I I think back to my grandfather, who was a wallpaper hanger and a, a house painter, and he was a great storyteller. And I I I didn't even realize this until I was a little bit older. I just knew that Pap would start to talk, and I loved to listen. I loved to listen if it was just the two of us driving along in his paint truck to a job. I loved to listen if it was him just reminiscing with old friends or sitting around a campfire at the beach when our family would go on vacation. He was a great storyteller, uh, and I think that was his true calling. Uh, the, the painting and wallpaper hanging was how he paid the bills, but he would have made a great history professor because he really knew how to capture a story, and he loved history. And he and I would sit, and he would uh, take out this old tape recorder of his with a microphone. You know, now I have a digital recorder that... Uh, you know, it's like the, about the size of a pack of gum. But this was a big box that sat on a table that had a microphone and earphones. And he would do little voices and encourage me to play. We would do little improv acts together on this recording. I don't have any of those tapes, but I remember asking him if I could take his tape recorder home with me. And he kind of said, okay, you know, to this <laughs> seven-year-old who wanted right. this big, expensive piece of equipment. And... What does survive from those days are tapes I made of myself, age seven, recording my own episodes of Transformers, the cartoon show I loved to watch when I came home from school. And I would take my toys and I would act out in my head. I thought I was doing the voices perfectly, but really I just sound like a little kid, you know, <laughs> you know trying to sound like Megatron or Optimus Prime. And I would act out uh, these little battles. And they, I, was, I realized now I was telling stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, I think it, it's partly genetic and it's partly how you're raised. And I, I, I think this is a quality I picked up from Pat. I just love to tell stories. And the, the both of us have very good memories, which is both good and bad in, in ways. Uh, you know, it's good in the sense you remember a lot of detail from your life. It's bad if you... Uh, if you ha if you want to hold a grudge, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I find that really interesting because I had uh, an aunt who she was like our family storyteller, and the same kind of thing. I I can remember being a little kid. I would go over and spend the night at her house, and of course, this was back you know fifty years ago, uh, and and no television, no nothing. But we would sit there, and she would just regale me with stories for for hours and hours. And you know, it's it's kind of sad. I think that's almost a, a lost art. You know, unless you're going to, you know, I guess you could go on YouTube and find it. But I mean, just sitting around with, with the elders listening to stories, uh, unfortunately, I don't think it happens much anymore. No, some people are just raconteurs, you know, they, 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 uh, what's the saying? I, I don't know who uh, originated this quote, but there's a saying that says, great stories happen to people who can tell them. I think we all go through wonderful and tragic and happy, sad, horrible 
experiences in our lives, but people who know how to tell a story almost put their lives in a different perspective and, and help those who don't put their lives and frame them in a, from a, a point of view. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, I, I think it's a good talent to have. I think, I think there's a reason society has storytellers. We need that as well as hunters and gatherers and uh, architects. and uh, <laughs> Someone's got to entertain. Yeah. Yeah, 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 or just help us see ourselves. You know, what I love about your story is, and I think you and I are alike in so many ways, only I'm much better looking. Um, I can I'm remember. That. That's why I'm glad this is radio, <laughs> because I don't have to feel like a turnip sitting beside you. Oh, look, look, you know, I, I had your, your picture up here in the office, and my 19-year-old daughter comes in and goes, whoa, who's that dad? And I'm like, somebody you'll never meet. Get out of my office. Where was uh, she when I was 19? She was very small. Um, but, uh, you know, the, just the, the, the storytelling. I can remember doing pretty much the same thing. In fact, now when I write, I, I actually will get in my car and drive around and just out loud say the – just have the conversation with myself. Uh, and that's how I play out scenes. And I think that's probably what you were doing as a kid. You didn't realize it at the time, but you were you were writing in your head and just kind of uh, doing a uh, uh, you know acting it all out. I think that's very very cool. Oh, absolutely. And, and I would actually, and then it would leave my head. And I remember being a kid and just running back and forth across the basement, acting out fight scenes <laughs> and things that were all just sort of in my head. And uh, I think. Yeah, even as you get older, maybe you don't uh, play act as much, but mm-hmm. you're, you're still telling yourself the story. A lot of writing happens while you're driving, while you're waiting in line at Disneyland, while you're in the shower, uh, while you're waiting for the movie to start. You're just thinking about your story, and I think that's one of the parallels that I see with journalism. Is In journalism, you go out and you interview people, and you you observe things, and you take notes, and you have your recordings, and then you come back and take all that and process it into a narrative as you write the story. And the same thing happens when you're doing fiction, except uh, with journalism, you're taking true things, and with fiction, you're, you're making it up. But you have to come with that imagination already sort of in full swing. You have to, you, you imagine the story you want to tell, you imagine the moments, the scenes, the smells, the sights, and then you sit down and take those things which exist only in your head, and uh, those are your notes, those are your transcripts, those are your observations, and you turn that into a story the same way as you do with a, a reported piece. Yeah, I, I remember a quote someone said, everyone has a story in them, but not everyone can get it out. That's true. And I think that's uh, very true. So when did you start writing? We're going to talk about the novel Brutal Youth uh, in just a minute. But uh, uh, do you remember the the first thing you wrote that you thought, hey, this is really great. Maybe I can show someone this or do something with it? You know what's strange is I I remember I had this assignment from my eighth grade school teacher. His name was Mr. Stitt. And he had vocabulary words. We all remember that from elementary school or middle school. You get, you know, you have your vo- you would read stories, and uh, there would be certain vocabulary words that they would they would uh, highlight to, uh, to to build up your perspicacity. <laughs> so <laughs> that's I, the word of the day. <laughs> uh, we would have to take uh, our twenty five vocabulary words every so often. Uh, I don't know if it was every couple of months or every report card period and write a theme. I don't know what the difference between a theme and a story is, but like it was called a theme, write a theme and use these words. And I remember being at basketball practice thinking about the story I was going to write and, you know, not to slag on my classmates, but they would, you know, write a paragraph that was kind of like a nonsense series of nonsense sentences that just sort of crammed all these words in together. And I had this idea that I wanted to write about a con artist at a bar who ends up trying to con a police officer. Now, I was probably 13, maybe, going on 13, 12, more likely. And I have no experience... As a confidence man, I have no experience in a bar. <laughs> I don't know what it's like to be a police officer, uh, but that's what I was writing about. I, I, I had this little story in my head, and I was figuring out where I could place all the words and that I needed to that I needed to tick off the list 
uh, for my theme. And it was called A Great Con, question mark. And I stole a part of the story from the TV show Cheers. The, uh, you remember Harry Anderson from, uh, from Night Court? He played, a, he played a con artist on Cheers. He would do a couple, before Night Court, he was on that show. And uh, he did a routine where he was paying back some money. And as he would dole out the money, he would say, hey, what time is it? Oh, it's 4 o'clock. Oh, 4, 5, six. Like he was, uh, I, he was I remember. augment uh, the amount of money. He was, he was you know, distracting the person and uh, changing the number of, uh, of bills he was paying mm-hmm. out which I thought was great. And now I recognize that as full-on plagiarism, but at the time I was like, oh, that's a cool trick. I'm going to use that in my story. So I wrote this five-page piece about a con artist who's trying to rip off customers in a bar and ends up hitting upon a cop and getting arrested. And that was the first thing I wrote. And I just remember it was also the first time I was really excited about doing a homework assignment. I loved it. And I can't even then, I remember thinking, this is weird. Why am I enjoying this? And around the same time, I got into Stephen King. I love Stephen King. I think he is... I, well, he's, well, he's the most um, successful author of all time, so I hesitate to say he's underrated. But I think as, uh, as a literary author, he is underrated. I think his books uh, run the gamut from schlock shock, scary, goofy horror to seriously memorable, moving works of literature. And I love that he embraces the high and the low of storytelling. Uh, I've read almost everything he's written. Uh, he, he writes, he's so damn prolific, it's actually harder to keep up with him. I can't believe this guy writes books faster than his fans can read them. But I was, uh, like I said, about 12 years old, and I wanted to see the movie Pet Cemetery which was, uh, came out in 1989. I could not get anyone to take me to see it. None of my older friends or family would drive me. And my grandmother, uh, the wife of the grandfather I was talking about, her name was, uh, I called her Nunny, Nunny and Pap. Uh, Nunny said, well, I'm not going to take you to see that movie, but uh, it's based on a book by this guy, Stephen King. How about if I buy you the novel? And I remember thinking like, oh, God, this sucks. I do not want to read the book. I just want to see the movie. Fine, fine, or fine, whatever. Like, so we went to Kmart and we bought this paperback of Pet Cemetery, And it was really the first grown-up book that I remember reading. I'd read a lot of kids' books, you know. But it was the first grown-up book I remember reading. And I was so struck by what Stephen King could accomplish on the page without visual effects, without sound effects, music, you know, all of the little tools that draw a feeling out of us in movies and television. This was just words on a page. And that was something I had access to, something I could generate myself. I could not make a movie at 12 years old. I could write a story. So I remember going to the office supply store and buying a really nice pen with like a soft grip and one of those composition notebooks. And I wrote a short story called The Dare, which was about a kid my age who really wanted to make friends at his school. And he gets in with this clique of boys who tell him he can hang with them if he digs up this old grave that they found in the corner of this graveyard in their town. And he does it. And the boys are (laughs) totally freaked out that he actually went through with it and reject him. And, uh, And then he panics. And then the body comes looking for the head that he took out of the casket. So uh, very, very Stephen Kingish. Oh yeah, I mean, I was trying so yeah. hard to be Stephen King, and I and I wrote uh, a ton of little uh, ghost stories, trying to be like my hero. And uh, it's funny because now for my second book, I'm uh, doing the same thing. I'm, I'm writing a sort of supernatural suspense story, and uh, I, I'm I'm still at, at 38, uh, enamored with Stephen King, and uh, look up to him so much. Well, you, I, I think it's easy to see in your book uh, the the inspiration there. Let's let's talk about it. The book is Brutal Youth, and uh, give us a, a thumbnail of what the book is about. It is a dark coming of age story. It's set in the early '90s at a uh, working class Catholic school. 
outside of Pittsburgh. It's all set in my hometown area. Uh, so it's about these three kids who end up as freshmen at this school, which is sort of a dumping ground for delinquents, troublemakers, misfits, and the unlucky. And uh, these kids sort of fall into those various groups. They're trying to survive. It's a place where uh, control of the students slash inmates is maintained through this sort of hazing culture, through a bullying culture that some teachers embrace as a way of uh, keeping the kids in line and some teachers abhor, but it's a part of the tradition there. And the problem with traditions is nobody wants to be the one to break them, especially if they had to endure them. And so it's really a survival story, a resistance story. It's about good kids trying to stay that way in a bad, bad place and some adults who got lost making that same journey. I, I really do like the book. It's 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 very dark, but it's also very comedic. And there are it you know it, it's like a Fast Times at Ridgemont High meets Shawshank. And I say that as a as a compliment because you know especially now with all the bullying that you hear about and all the hazing and everything that are going on in in schools, uh, the St. Mike's is is kind of a dark place that I I would think going in you don't really know if you're going to survive. No, and I'm glad to hear you say that because I really did want it to be funny and uh, have a, a a bit of a a sardonic element to it. I I think it's a uh, Everything that happens in the book actually happened to me or to friends of mine or were things that I, I read about happening at a school. Um, but it's all based in reality. The, the fiction element is sort of how all of the pieces fit together and turn the wheels of this plot. But the story itself, I wanted it to capture the absurdity that you sometimes find in the middle of very deep, very dark trouble. You know, it's, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know, Tim, what kind of kid you were, but I was the kind who got into trouble a lot, and often things could get out of hand. I, I'm a big fan of Breaking Bad, like a lot of people, and The Sopranos, and I would say the book was also inspired by the tone of those shows. I, I hesitate to bring them up because I would not want to compare myself against them, but, you know, in Breaking Bad, there was always this sort of comedic element to... Almost like a farce happening with Walter White and how he had this sadness in his life. He, he's dying from this disease. He's doing this terrible thing. He's manufacturing this destructive drug. They are forced to kill people in order to protect themselves. And yet there were times where it just becomes like a, a comedy you know, where it's such, it's so dark that it almost comes around full circle to humor. And I love that. I love that element of storytelling. I like a, a book that mixes it up and is not a downer. I did not want Brutal Youth to be sort of a depressing lecture about the dangers of bullying. I wanted it to be an exciting war story that made you laugh and made you feel guilty for laughing sometimes and made you hold your breath, and made you really root for these characters and sometimes say, I'm not so sure I am rooting for that character. I really wanted to create a kind of tension and uh, tug of war for your affections. So my wife, she, re she read the book, of course, in its draft phases, but when it was published in hardback last year, she read it again. And uh, near the end of the book, there are two characters who really get their comeuppance. A, a, a part of the theme of Brutal Youth is that the good guys don't always win, but that there's victory in being good, even if you don't you know, win the day, even if it's not a happy ending. You did the right thing. And so, you know, I, I don't want to spoil it for people, but sometimes the bad folks are not punished, and sometimes the people who do the right thing pay a cost for that. And what my wife said is there are two bad guys uh, among many that, you really do bring the hammer down. And right before you do that, you damn it, you've made me feel bad for them. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I wanted was I wanted you to really hate certain characters and then at times be surprised that you understand them or feel for them when you learn a little more about their backstory or their motivation. Or you agree with what they're trying to accomplish, uh, maybe closing the school because this is clearly a monster factory but maybe the reasons they want to close it are not ones that you can support. 
so for the good characters, the heroes of the story, I wanted you to uh, have times where you weren't so sure. I'm sure, like, Tim, you must have had friends where, you know, hey, let's, uh, let's get up to some trouble. And you feel like, uh, maybe I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, maybe we should not. And uh, I really wanted to, 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 to capture that feeling of being that age where life can very quickly uh, get out of control. Well, you do a really good job of writing uh, characters that age. Uh, for example, there there are three, I, I think, three main. Would you call them the hero characters? Uh, David or Peter, Noah, and uh, and the girl, and uh, they they Lorelai. They somewhat team up. They do, um, and then at times they pull apart and disappoint each other, and other times they surprise each other by. Uh, you know, sacrificing something important. There are really four freshmen. Uh, there's Peter Davidek. He's a he's a good. He's he's sort of the central figure. He's a good kid. He he does just does not want trouble. He wants to keep his head down, but he does have a very strong sense of right and wrong. They kind of uh, the gravity of that pulls him into trouble a lot. Um, his best friend is a, a kid named Noah Stein. He has this burn scar on the side of his face, which he likes to tell people was like. Uh, something he got in the middle of a fight at a Boy Scout camp. Uh, he loves to start fights. He loves to finish fights, but he is not a bully. He's more of like a, uh, I guess, just one of those quick-tempered people who is fearless. You know, he'll stand up to teachers who are pushing him around or other kids around. He, he stands up to the folks who are doing the bullying in this story. But he doesn't really have a great sense of right or wrong, and that's something he gets from Davidek. And it's something they get from each other. Davidek gets to be a little stronger, a little braver, and uh, Noah Stein uh, learns where to direct his own anger and uh, defiance. And then there's Lorelai Pascal, who's this girl who, uh, I think on the jacket copy, I described her as, uh, she's so desperate to be liked she doesn't care how many enemies she makes along the way. She comes from a very troubled home life. She's been told for most of her life that she's worthless, and she just desperately needs this school to be a safe place. And that desperation leads her to make some not great decisions uh, along the way. And the fourth part of this puzzle is a kid uh, whose name is Hector Greenwill. He's overweight. He's the only black student at this all-white school, so he's a target on two fronts. But the advantage he has is he, he's really good at something. I think be, as a teenager, you can be really good at sports and you can be really good at music. And almost everything else takes a lot longer to, to, to learn and develop as a skill. And I knew kids who were, I, a couple of my friends in particular, the Salati brothers, Mike and Frank, they were great musicians, just fantastic guitarists. And I remember like hearing them play when they, when we were 14 years old and thinking, how are they so good at this? Like I suck at everything and they're very good at it. And having that kind of talent, I think gives you a confidence. It, 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 you know who you are. And so green, even though everybody's telling him he's so different, uh, he knows who he is and that confidence helps him uh, navigate this place a little better. Um, He's not uh, as needy as the other kids. And yet he has this other element of him, his race and his size, that uh, also makes him very vulnerable. So those are the four main characters of the story. And then there are a ton of, I guess, a rogues gallery of, uh, of, of demented misfits uh, <laughs> among the students and the teachers and the administrators of the school who... Uh, who vex and bedevil these kids and uh, and 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 lead them, uh, I guess, to a couple of scary places. You know, one of my favorite characters in the book, and this is uh, this is from a guy who in Cuckoo's Nest. My favorite character was Nurse Ratchet. Uh, in your book, I love Ms. Bromine. Tell us about her. Good. I'm glad you like her because she is. <laughs> she's not incredibly likable. <laughs> everyone hates Ms. Yeah. Bromine. She's um, she's the guidance counselor at the school. And she is one of these people, you know, you know, the kind of guy who comes back and hangs out in the high school parking lot, even after he's graduated, like can't let go of that life he had and move on to the next stage. She's like that. She's the female, you know, A plus teacher's pet version of that. 
she was the queen bee at this school when she was a student here. And now that she's in her, I think she's in her early 40s, she's back. She's been back for a while, but she just keeps getting older. And she's really begun to resent the kids who've replaced her. And uh, if, you, if you've ever known somebody who just cannot let go of their glory days, because they don't have any present day glory that's who she is. She's drowning in this bitterness and she is losing control. You know, she's starting to slip. She's letting it burst out in ways that are, are, uh, uh, beyond her control. You know, this anger is sort of breaking through like magma on a volcano. (laughs) And, um, you know, and she, but in a lot of ways she's right. The school has, degraded in the time since she was a student and I wanted to capture a kind of loneliness about her that helps you understand where her anger is coming from so even if you don't support that anger I hope people at various points in the story uh, have a little sympathy for this devil and this bromine well, you, you did such a really good job of developing her as a character, and I think you I think you hit the nail right on the head. She sees what is happening to the school and, and really takes it very personally because it seems to be happening to her as well. Yeah, you know what's funny? I was asked by um, uh, this website to, to come up with like a playlist for the book. You know, they'll ask authors, uh, uh, I think it's the site Large Hearted Boy, they... Uh, they ask you to come up with like songs that inspired your book. And I had songs for each of the main characters to help me kind of get in their heads. I love the third person omniscient point of view in a story like this, because I think a lot of the drama comes from characters misunderstanding each other. And if the reader understands the motivation behind the character, you can kind of see where the misconnection is. And I love gravitating, not, into their heads where they begin narrating the story, but you get the narration gets close to certain characters at, at certain points and kind of takes on their attitude a little bit. Um, it's a technique called focalization that Stephen King uses a lot and uh, Jane Austen used a lot, where the narration is still uh, separate from the character, but almost like when you hang out with a group of people, you, you begin taking on their swagger. <laughs> That's kind of what I like to do. And in her case, uh, yeah, I really wanted her to, um, to kind of uh, strike a nerve that she's not anyone you identify with or like or want to hang out with, but she's what you dread. You don't want to be like her. And you want to, by understanding her, maybe that's a way of not following her path. Right. What what inspired you to to write this book, and what what really drew you to the story, and, and more so, if it's it's a very dark story, but was it a fun story to write? Oh, it's a lot of fun to write, and a lot. As I said, a lot of it is based on uh, real experiences I had as a high school student. I went into this school that was a a, a really wonderful school at, for a time, and by the time I arrived there, it had become a pretty rough place. And you wouldn't think that looking at all the nice little plaid skirts and the, uh, and the blue blazers that the students were wearing, they all looked like perfect angels going in. But they, a lot of kids had been sent there because they got kicked out of public school for misbehaving. And if you just pay the cost of admission, of tuition, you could go to this school. And I remember coming in and being warned, okay, there's this sanctioned hazing. It's called, or it's called initiation. And you're going to get pushed around, you're going to get made fun of, you're going to get called names. And the trick is to go along with it, because otherwise you'll be a bad sport and then it will become even worse for you. And a lot of it was very disturbing. When the adults were looking, yeah, it was just fun and games. It was kind of a sing-songy thing. They'd make you march around and sing the school song or sing sort of old spirituals and baritone, which had a kind of strange racist element to it, if you ask me. But at the time, you're just like, okay, I guess I'll sing this and march around. And then um, they would make you, you know, serve them lunch, like a butler or a waitress. And it was kind of creepy. And then on the school bus, when there was nobody really supervising us, it could get really ugly, really dangerous. you get piled on in the back of the bus. You'd be summoned back, and these sort of like 
almost like this tribe of upperclassmen would ask you questions and they're trying to find something to make fun of, you know, and you know, they'd ask you questions about sex or about your family or about your friends or about your face, you know, whatever they could poke at as a potential vulnerability. And it always ended with you getting thrown up against the wall and pressed, you know, like 10 big guys pushing against you. And when you're 14 and you're facing these 18, 19 year olds, they're like a different species. You know, they, they seem like they're twice your size. I remember thinking, like I look at a, at an 18 year old guy today and I think what a twerp. <laughs> when I was 14, <laughs> yeah. These guys were giants, you know, they were, uh, they were colossal and um, they were Goliaths. And I, you know, just remember just praying like, oh my God, I just hope they don't beat the crap out of me. Like I broke my leg when I was a sophomore and I ended up having a cane for part of the year. And there was this kid on the bus who stole my cane oh my God. And, <laughs> and broke it in half. Like I have to walk home. Like how, why would you break someone's cane? But that was kind of the culture we had. And for the girls, it wasn't as physical but it was still disturbing. The girls would bully each other, and it would be psychological. It would be about isolation. It would be about nicknames, about uh, the term now is slut-shaming. You know, make up a rumor about somebody and spread it around. And uh, good luck living with that for the next four years. But also the guys, I remember, on the school bus would make the freshman girls come back and uh, perform in a beauty contest, you know, walk up and down the aisle while we evaluate your physical appearance. And um, even at the time, as a kid, I remember thinking, this is fucked up. <laughs> this is wrong. <laughs> I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. You, of course you can. Well, do, do you it think was, that, do you think that, that, that kids are just inherently evil or are they no. just bored out of their freaking minds? What what causes most of this bullying? And I think the internet, uh, I don't know if it's made it worse. It's certainly made it more accessible and uh, public, isn't it? Yeah, I think what's changed between uh, now and 20 years ago when the book is set is not the behavior, but the way it's recorded. It's captured now. All those things that people would say to us on the bus or in the hallway – now it's on Facebook or it's in text message or it's on Tumblr or wherever. There's a record of it. And I think that's now why adults are paying attention to it in a way they didn't then. I think if for genera generations past, adults would kind of think, well, you know, it's just kid problems, just kid stuff. And a lot of times kids, kids would hide what they're, you know, I don't think uh, you go home. I, I wouldn't go home and say, guess what they called me on the bus today, mom. You don't want your mom involved, you know. And other times you ask for help and you don't get any and you decide, I, I'm, I'm done waiting for somebody to rescue me. I'm just going to handle this on my own. I was going to say, you, you, you said, like, are kids born this way? I don't think they are. I think I'm an optimist about human nature. I think we are born basically good. And the way the book starts out, the main character, Peter Davidek, runs out to save a total stranger from this attack. A kid snaps, and he loses control, and he ends up on the roof of the school pushing over these stone statues of angels and saints, trying to hurt the people below. And Peter Davidek runs out to save a total stranger. And I wanted the story to be about what, how do you go from the kid who runs out to help somebody he doesn't even know, risking his own life, to being the kid on the roof trying to inflict pain. What turns one kid into the other and vice versa? So I believe people are born basically good. And as we get older, we develop a kind of armor, which we need. But sometimes we get hardened down to our core and we lose touch with our humanity. And I think I've read a couple of criticisms from Teachers, like by and large, the reviews for the rural youth have been great, especially from teachers who definitely see this behavior and know it happens and know how bad it can get, how destructive it can be. But uh, every now and then I hear from a teacher who says, well, like, well, this would never happen. Somebody would step in and intervene. And I think the news is just full of stories about kids who've lashed out or maybe taken their own lives because they too thought, Somebody will step in and stop this, right? And it doesn't always happen. But I think you, you have to develop an armor as you go through life. You have to toughen up. Life is hard. 
and you learn that when you're a teenager. Uh, no one's protecting you all the time like they do when you're a little kid. But I think whole countries can go insane sometimes. There's like a mob mentality that takes over and they begin persecuting a certain group. And that can happen on a large scale, like, like I said, a whole nation or a whole culture. And I think it definitely can happen on a small scale, uh, a sports team or a school. Right. And a lot of times people will join in because they don't want to be the ones that are being persecuted. And that, I think that happens in the book. Oh, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the the, uh, the process, Anthony. In the few minutes that we have left, um, so you wrote the book, the manuscript. Uh, when it came time to publish, what was the route you took? Did you seek out an agent? Well, I wrote the book and I began reaching out as in the usual way to agents. I didn't get too far with that. I was really bummed out. I would get a couple of like uh, almost like out of office replies, like we are not accepting submissions at this time. And rejection is very hard. And again, talk about developing some armor. You've got to, if you want to be a writer, you better get used to that because everybody who has had a massive success also has tons of crazy stories about how many times their book was rejected. So I was really nervous about that. And I didn't, I don't take, uh, I don't take uh, rejection all that well. So I gave up. I sat on the book for probably two years and just did nothing. And in that time, well, I didn't do, it wasn't that I did nothing. I, I worked and I did other things and my, my wife and I decided to have a baby. So um, that was something. <laughs> and uh, Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. And my daughter, she's now five, uh, but I remember rocking her to sleep one night and she was, uh, you know, an infant. And, and I remember thinking, wow, our lives have just changed instantly now that we've had kids so much about the way you used to act and the the way you used to behave uh, goes away and i remember thinking i wonder what she'll know about me from before i was dad you know i have this new identity now but i wonder what she'll know about me from before when i was young when i was a kid and i thought i had this voice in my head was like well she'll read your book she'll read brutal youth and she'll know doing the right thing, even when it comes at a high cost, not letting hardship warp you too deeply. And then that voice said, oh, but is she going to read your binder on the shelf, your, your manuscript, or may, you know, is she going to peruse your Microsoft Word file? And that really <laughs> bothered me. Yeah. And I really, at that point, that nagging voice, which can be so destructive for a writer, tell you you're not good enough, that it's not going to work, in this case, the nagging voice really spurred me to action, and I decided I'm going to face it. I'm going to deal with the rejection, and I began pushing really hard, trying to find uh, representation. And I never found an agent. I I, I got the book to uh, St. Martin's Press, and an editor there really liked it. And then he sat on it for a year before coming back with an offer, a very small offer, and said, use this to get an agent, which I did. But that's actually a bad way to get an agent because then you just end up with an agent who, who's going to do a contract for you and, um, and not really nurture you or, or help you grow as a writer or, or advise you. So I had, a, you know, I had a, an agent, I guess, in, in name only, but uh, I, I didn't really get a whole ton of guidance in that department. You know, a lot of emails went unanswered. Uh, but I did have a great foreign rights agent who, you know, uh, I worship her. She really believed in the book. And that's what you need. You need somebody, an editor and an agent who believes in you. So if you ever are submitting and somebody says yes, but you get the sense that they're like not all that into it, maybe you should say no. Maybe move on to somebody who's much more passionate. Even if they say, I don't like this draft, but I believe in this story and you can do better. I would rather hear that than just, okay, I'll represent you. Yeah, that means they know. That means that's what you want is an agent who will tell you, here's where you can do better. So, Anthony, when you were looking for a publisher for the first book, did you ever consider self-publishing? Oh, I definitely thought about it. I think every author considers that as they're trying to get their first book out onto the marketplace. But, you know, when I was shopping the book, it was three or four years ago, and uh, it was not – Self-publishing was definitely a thing that existed, but it wasn't quite the phenomenon that it is right now. Uh, I think 
I have friends who have pursued self-publishing. A woman named Ginger Scott who writes these terrific love stories. They're, uh, I guess you would call them like new adult stories, uh, kind of college-themed uh, stories of, uh, you know, couples, lo- love stories, romantic uh, drama. But I, I'm not even like a big romance fan, but I think she does. Just like she just tells great human stories. But she's self-publishing. And she has a ton of success with it, and I'm really envious because I, for instance, cannot discount Brutal Youth as an ebook for like a special sale on Amazon. And she can do that herself. She can knock the price down to a couple of bucks. Suddenly, you uh, you know you get listed on a discount site like BookBub with something like that, and you can sell thousands of copies. Now you're selling them for a lower price than you know most hardbacks go for in uh, you know the commercial market or whatever traditional publishing but what i found was like what she was earning on those books uh is kind of similar to the uh royalties any author would get from a professional publisher and (laughs) you know what i mean because her her percentage that she's collecting off of even the you know a book that sells for for three dollars as a special discount is similar to what I get for every you know hardback of Brutal Youth that sells. So I kind of think public traditional publishing really needs to get with the program because they're not. I don't think they are. I don't think it's a model that really works anymore. You know, unless you happen to strike gold, it's a lottery ticket situation. If you buy, if you if you acquire a book that just happens to catch on and sell tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or, you know, millions of copies, then great. Then you yield a massive return. But otherwise, it's kind of these sort of uh, uh, lone wolf authors who go out alone. You know, usually they're in a certain genre like romance or horror or science fiction, and they basically build their audience from the ground up. And I have a lot of respect for those people. Now, there are a lot of folks who write just bad books that nobody wants to publish, and they go and uh, self-publish them, and those disappear from the market. I think the challenge that every author has to think about is it's never been easier to get published it, you know, because of self-publishing, but it's harder than ever to be heard. And I think the advantages of being published in the traditional way are kind of like the advantages of getting a college degree. You know, it's like you could learn all the same things through reading and and research and all sorts of like practical experience on your own. But that degree that you pay for, that you go into debt for as as a college kid, is sort of like a vouch for future employers. Like this person went through this program and they studied these things and they had this grade point average. So therefore, as you're ready to hire, you can sort of take for granted that they know their business, you know, that they know their subject. And then I think self-publishing is kind of like that self-made entrepreneur who, you know, like uh, Bill Gates, who never, you know, didn't he like not graduate college or sort of dropped out of college and, you know, like, you know, and I'm not saying self-publishers are dropouts. I'm saying, no, it's saying I'm not going the systemic route. I'm going on my own and I'm going to build my own audience. I'm going to build my own career without going, the, you know, through the system. And I think there's a lot to admire about that. The downside is you don't get into bookstores, you know? The upside is, what's a bookstore? You know, like there are, you know, like how many bookstores have closed? There are, you know, every major city has a couple of great indie bookstores, but not every town has one, you know? You're lucky if your town has a Barnes and Noble that's within driving distance. You know, there's no more borders. And when you go to Barnes and Noble, um, you know, they they have increasingly or decreasingly reserved space for books, you know, is that there's a lot of other products for sale at Barnes and Noble. And if you don't sell a lot of books at the get-go, you're kind of out off of those shelves too. So what was the advantage of going the traditional route? If Barnes & Noble decides not to take a chance on a first-time author, you have a very hard time being discovered, you know? And I would say, you know, as far as the indie bookstores go, I love Skylight Books in Los Angeles. I love Changing Hands in, uh, in Phoenix. 
And there are, uh, there are tons of great bookstores across the country, Tattered Page, all of these uh, wonderful indie bookstores. But I've also been to a few indie bookstores in L.A. where they have all of the same titles that are available at my grocery store. And then I have a harder time finding, you know, first-time authors, other more obscure books that are maybe, you know, more than a year old. And I find that a lot of indie bookstores, they're just trying to sell the books that sell, you know, instead of curating something that's a little different than you can get at the, you know, the shop and save. So, you know, if you're an author that's trying to consider, should I go the self-publishing route? Should I go the traditional route? I say explore the traditional route, try to get an agent, see what that turns up. And then if, if it doesn't yield results, then yeah, go out on your own, especially if you are in a genre that has a pre-existing fan base. I think for Brutal Youth, you know, it's a coming of age story. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, not, it's not a, a particular uh, genre though, you know, like sci-fi or something like that. And, uh, you know, it would have been harder to build an audience on my own. So I'm glad I went the path I did, but I think in the future, if you've established yourself the traditional way, why not go alone, you know, and control your product, no more fighting over what the cover should be, you know, I think there's a lot uh, to do there. And anybody who's interested in this, look up Ginger Scott. She's online. Um, she, she writes the This Is Falling series. Uh, she, uh, I think she's the model for what a lot of, you know, entrepreneurial authors could become. The audience for this show primarily are authors who want to do what you have done, either traditionally or self-publish a book, uh, you know, be agented at some point, that sort of thing. Uh, what advice do you have to, to the authors listening to this show who would like to do what you have done? Well, you know, there's, <laughs> we could talk for another hour about that subject. But um, look, you're going to make some mistakes you, you, if you're new to this you know, it doesn't matter who you are or how old you are or what you've done before. If you're starting out as an author, it's just like being an intern in the first stages of whatever career you're pursuing. You know, you're going to make mistakes. There are going to be things you don't know. There are going to be people who stab you in the back. There are going to be people who help you for no good reason and change your life in very positive ways with nothing to gain for themselves. And um, you're going to encounter all of that. And you'll come away with some regrets. And if you're you know, because writers tend to dwell on the negative, <laughs> you know, we ruminate on that. But you will also look back and you'll see a lot of wonderful things that um, you could never have imagined happening either. I would say there's, there's so much that we could go into here, but the one thing you really need is an agent who believes in you, who trusts you, somebody you trust in return, somebody who will tell you hard truths, you know, this book is not going to move or but we're going to give it our best shot anyway, or here's what the challenges are, and here's how we will try to surmount them. But um, you run the risk, too, of getting an agent who finishes their job when they sign the contract and doesn't give you any guidance, doesn't answer any of your questions. There, Unfortunately, there are some of those out there, and um, it's very hard to know who you're getting at the outset. But I would say, as you send out your queries, don't just say yes to the first person who says yes to you. You wouldn't do that if you were dating, you know, if the first person who expressed interest in going out with you was the person you committed to, you know, for life. Uh, when it comes to finding an agent, I think send out your queries and, you know, obviously you re if you don't get anything and you reach a certain frustration level and you only have one choice, well, okay, I guess you make that choice. But don't just say yes to the first person. Wait and see what happens. And as they interview you, you know, it's kind of like when you're a first time or you're being interviewed for a job, even though they're technically working for you. You know, they want to feel you out and see how you are, how you might be in front of a crowd, how you present in an interview, what your um, uh, state of mind is. You know, if you're somebody who needs a lot of hand-holding or is super high maintenance, they might decide, uh, this isn't worth it, even if I like the book. But they're going to try to figure you out and you need to figure them out, too. Don't just take, take them and accept, because they're an agent, that they'll be a good agent for you. Um, you know, I have some regrets in that area, but uh, I, um, I, I think just make sure that you really believe in the person. And ask them, before you sign on, 
what they think a per what they think your career could be, you know, not just how are we going to, who are you going to sell book one to, but they should be asking you what's in your head for book two. What's in your head for book three. What do you see on the horizon? Here's what I see. They should be volunteering that. Here's what I think you would be great at. Um, so make sure it's a, a job interview on both sides. They're auditioning for your uh, commitment as well. I, I think that's such good information and, and advice because, I mean, I'm, I'm like you. I mean, I, I had an agent for my, my first book uh, in 07, which was a business book. And now that I write fiction, I'm, I'm you know, trying to find another agent and talking to agents and that sort of thing. But I think there is a, a tendency among authors to, if, if they get the attention of an agent, any agent, they're just so eager uh, to jump into bed with them when, and as you said, it might not be the, the right person that can guide your career. They may be able to sell one book for you, but then they don't return your calls, which was, which was my experience the first time out. So, you know, just because an agent is, is sniffing around, don't be so quick to act. Exactly. Yeah. Just because you have, uh, you know, interest, make sure you are interested. Make sure this agent has serious enthusiasm for you. There's nothing worse than getting an agent who just doesn't care less. And a lot of times that means not going with the biggest agent in the world. You know, I, I kind of wish I was with a, uh, a, an agent who was smaller for the first book because that, you know, or an agent who's up and coming just as I was, who's more interested in working with me on a, uh, you know, building a career for a new author. Uh, so, you know, make sure that you're, you're with somebody who's actually going to pay attention to you and not just forget you exist. Any regrets uh, as far well, as, uh, as the, the book? book Brutal Youth after a line in an Elvis Costello song called Favorite Hour. And the line is, now there's a tragic waste of brutal youth. Uh, I heard that the year I graduated from high school in 1994. And it really struck me. I remember hearing that line and just thinking, oh my God, this, I feel like this perfectly sums up the past four years. All of this emotion and drama and anger and, and happiness and love and friendship, all of this, and now it's just gone and I, I move on. Is, I, I don't know that it's a tragic waste, but it can feel that way. It feels like a lot of energy, but it actually is, uh, it's like the supernova that creates all these different elements in the universe and in our lives. So I love that line. Now there's a tragic waste of brutal youth. And that was actually the title of the album that Elvis Costello uh, put that song on. But I worry sometimes that brutal youth scares people, that it's going to be this punishing experience or that it's only about kids and maybe not of interest to adults. So the brutal and the youth part, mm, part of me almost wishes my editor or agent had said, let's think of a different title because uh, the alternate would have been dark sarcasm, which comes from another song, Pink Floyd's uh, uh, another brick in the wall. Uh, no dark sarcasm in the classroom. Teachers leave those kids alone. So uh, we don't need no education is the line everybody knows, but I always like the dark sarcasm line. I think that might've made for a good alternate title uh, on the cover of the book with that burning schoolboy jacket they came up with but you know you live with uh, you live with the title and uh, maybe i'd be wrong about that so uh i just hope brutal youth doesn't scare people off well yeah i actually like the title i love the cover because it's got the school jacket with a red tie and it's it's on fire i mean i to, to me yes. it's a great cover a great cover it is i love it uh you know and if you notice the in the in the novel a clip-on tie is a is a part of the story uh, the main character has to wear this clip-on tie because his mom just is lazy about it, doesn't get him a regular one. And it's like such a stupid little thing, but it's something that they make fun of him about. And if you notice on the cover, there's a little clip. It's a clip-on tie, not a regular one. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Oh, now I'm working on a, uh, a novel. It's a supernatural thriller. I think I mentioned it earlier. Uh, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's still in the, uh, in the nascent stages, so I won't divulge too much. Uh, but it's it's about an old house. It's about a troubled family. It's about uh, sort of old and forgotten history that uh, begins to come to the surface when they move in. 
that sounds very generic. <laughs> it's a haunted house story. That's the premise of it. But I, uh, I'm having a lot of fun taking that template and bringing some new twists to it, uh, which is what I don't want to reveal. But I'm, I, you know, I, I love taking a kind of standard story and uh, like a coming of age story and throwing a ton of curveballs in there. So that's what I'm working on now. Gotcha. Well, the book is Brutal Youth. Uh, I'm enjoying this book a lot. Really like it. If you uh, do like a dark comedy, again, very uh, there's some Stephen King influence there. And I think Stephen even uh, gave you a, a quote on the book, yes, which is. most authors would die for, Anthony. I would have died <laughs> for it as well. I, I would have gladly given... Uh, uh, no, not my firstborn. That's a toss-up. <laughs> Maybe my secondborn. Well, just wait, wait and see how well the second one works out. So, uh, Anthony, where can they find out more information about you and your book? You can find me on Twitter, at uh, Bresnikan. That's B-R-E-Z-N-I-C-A-N. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. If you just search for my name, Anthony Bresnikan, and my website is anthonybresnikan.com. My wife made it for me, so uh, I hope people like it. I think it's a really nifty website. Well, you tell her I think it's a really good website. You also do a radio show, do you not? Yeah, I, well, I work for Entertainment Weekly as a film reporter there, and there's uh, uh, on Sirius uh, XM 105, we have the Entertainment Weekly channel, so I host a weekly movie talk show on, on that channel. And uh, every now and then we uh, sneak some authors on to talk about their books under the guise of telling me which movies inspire their <laughs> Very good. The book is Brutal Youth, Anthony Bresnikan. Hey, man, this has been a lot of fun. When you get the next book out, give me a call. We'll do it again. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for uh, paying some attention. Thanks for listening to the Interviewing Authors program. To listen to even more great interviews and learn even more from other successful authors, visit our website at interviewingauthors.com. Also, don't forget to connect with interviewing authors on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to take part in your very own interview and have me as your very own personal interview coach, check out yourbookinterview.com for a very special offer available only to listeners of this program. Again, that's yourbookinterview.com. My name is Tim Knox, and I'll see you next time.